lesson for us as well. Let me show you a couple marks of the fool. First, his foolishness is evident in how he behaves. We see that in verse 3, that he behaves badly. Now, for someone to behave badly, for somebody to make that absolute statement that he is harsh and behaves badly, it has to be according to a standard. By what standard is the author saying that Nabal behaved badly? It's according to the Word of God. And so what it's really saying is Nabal is a man of disobedience. He's a man of lawlessness. And what's really sad about that is Nabal was not some untrained Canaanite. What does it tell us in verse 3? What, what's his family line? It says he was from the clan of Caleb. The clan of Caleb was noted in Scripture for their faith and godliness. This fool may have their name, their family name, but he has forsaken their way of life. It's a warning to covenant children in this group. Isn't it? That you have been raised with privileges of being under the Word of God, and the most foolish thing you can do is turn away from it. Second, Nabal's foolishness is evident in that he had no respect for David. David is the king-elect of Israel. He deserves respect, if for no other reason than because of his title. He has shown respect to Saul simply because of Saul's title. Look at verse 10. When David's men come to Nabal and ask for food, Nabal responded, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now it's funny, as far as we know, he hasn't been told that David was the son of Jesse. So he knows exactly who this is. In fact, all of Israel knows who this is, but I'm not impressed that David is asking for food. He goes even further to verse 11. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men from, I don't know where they're from. Who knows? Bethlehem? Where is Bethlehem on the map? He had no respect for God's call in David's life. Now third, Nabal was overcome by greed rather than gratitude. It was a mark of foolishness. See, the wise person understands that all that we have is due to the generosity of God. And that ought to foster a spirit of generosity in us. If we understand that everything we have is a gift from God, then it ought to foster generosity in us. And that was actually part of the custom in ancient Israel. At shearing time, when you were getting ready to make bukus of money, you showed generosity to the poor. So this was a very logical request. David is, is poor at this point. And he says, can you share some of that great wealth that you're getting ready to receive? Nabal doesn't see it that way, and he gives them nothing but a hard time. Why didn't Nabal show generosity? Look at verse 11, where we see who Nabal's world revolves around. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And doesn't it remind you of another story? Does it remind you of the rich fool of Jesus' parable who spoke with similar selfishness? He was at the center of all of his thoughts and schemes and plans back in Luke 12. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, 
and be merry. And if you remember in Luke 12 how Jesus described that man, he used the word fool. This night, he says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? That sounds a lot like Nabal, especially as we go further through the story. You have to wonder if David had Nabal in mind. In Psalm 14, verse 1, where it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It literally reads, Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. The fool has no regard for their creator, their neighbor, or their eternal state. And we see that here. Nabal's wealth may have done much for him in life, but it could not save him in death. And although he may have had all that the world had to offer, this fool was the poorest of all men because he did not know God. Now the problem with dealing with fools is that they drag you down to their level and then they beat you with experience. We're going to see David do something that we haven't seen from him yet, and that's that David goes into an absolute fury. Let's start at verse 13. David has just heard the report from his young men that Nabal's not going to help him. Verse 13, David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man, every man of them strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now that sword, that word sword, is written three times in verse 13. It doesn't require a PhD in Old Testament interpretation to understand what David has planned there, even though we don't see it explicitly until verses 21 and 22. And David would have gone through with, with killing Nabal and his men had God not sent Abigail, who Dale Ralph Davis called a savior in a skirt. Isn't it amazing that right after David showed such restraint and self-control and character by not killing Saul, who had spent years trying to kill him, now David is ready to kill Nabal because he wouldn't share his food and because he mocked him. Not only would David have sinned if he had killed Nabal, but he did sin simply by virtue of his anger here. We know that the Lord Jesus says to, to anger, to be angry in your heart with somebody is equivalent to murder. This man, on whom every eye is fixed as the hope of the kingdom now that Samuel has died, is now blind with fury against Nabal because Nabal insulted him. I want us to think about how David could go from such a great victory again with Saul uh, to now such foolish sin. And a couple reasons, I think. One is he sinned here because he wasn't on guard against sin. He wasn't, his heart was not vigilant. You know, with Saul, David knew the lay of the land. David knew that Saul had been hunting him. David had time to reconcile how he would respond to Saul. And he responded correctly. But here, the foolish Nabal caught David off guard. And there's no reason David should have expected Nabal to to respond in that way, and David wasn't prepared for it, and immediately his anger seethed. His anger got out of control. Beloved, we need to remember that Satan is like a lion, always seeking to devour prey. You, you know, or most of you know the story 
of Siegfried and Roy, two German-American men who are famous for their, their shows featuring their work with tigers in Las Vegas. And for years, they interacted with these massive tigers and, and to the amazement of their fans. They were able to, to put their guard down with these tigers and, and do incredible tricks with them. But on October 3rd, 2003, a seven-year-old tiger named Montecourt turned on Roy and attacked him and severed his spine. Isn't it true of us that when we let down our guard against sin, thinking it cannot hurt us, thinking we are beyond it, next thing we know, it can have us by the neck. When are you most vulnerable to Satan's attacks? I think the answer is always. The answer is always. But especially when we let down our guard. I think that if if we were half as vigilant about our own sin as we are of everyone else's, we'd be far more sanctified and far more prepared for its attacks. So that's the first thing. I think David fell because he wasn't on guard. Second, he fell into such sin because he had just had a great spiritual victory. David just showed immense self-control and faith in not killing Saul. And what oftentimes happens is the greater spiritual successes we perceive that we have had, really those are God's victories, but oftentimes what happens is we begin to loosen our grip and lighten our dependence upon God's grace. As one commentator said, once his flesh was unrestrained by reliance upon God, David was transformed into just another Saul. Saul reacted to a perceived affront by ordering the death of all the priests at Nob, and now David intends to answer Nabal's insult by slaying all the men of that household. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. When we begin to trust in our own strength and become proud of our own moral fortitude, Even the strongest among us become weak. Even the most mature Christian, when left to himself, acts foolishly because we ourselves have no strength or wisdom to draw from. Our wisdom and our strength only come insofar as we are utterly dependent upon Christ Jesus. That's why in John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. David's just had a great spiritual victory, and so now he thinks he's greater than he is. I think there's a third thing that led to David's sin here, and that is that he desired his name to be honored and held in good repute. He desired recognition. Nabal slighted him here, really calling him old. What's his name? What's David's response in verse 21? Surely in vain I've guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. David says, why was I so good to him? Well, the answer is because Jesus has called us to love our neighbor. But David says, what was in it for me? He's slandering my name. It reminds us that God's servants are never above pride And pride can make us very sensitive to being criticized and disrespected and slighted. And that's what David's feeling here. 
How different was Jesus' attitude? Look with me at, at, at 1 Peter 2. Jesus, when he was mocked by the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, becomes our model, and that's exactly what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 21. Speaking of suffering at the hands of the government, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If we wish to be like Christ, we must mortify the sin of pride that lurks beneath the surface in all of us, desiring recognition, desiring that we not be slighted, feels bitter when it senses that it's been disrespected. We've got to put that to death. As we've said before, Christians should be the hardest people in the world to offend. But David, in his intense fury at the fool Nabal sinned in his heart. And if God had not sent somebody to intervene, then he would have sinned with his hands too. We, we've already seen how Saul squandered the kingdom because of his own sin, and now would David be added to the list of wannabe kings who flunked out? I think the answer is, in all likelihood, yes, he would have if God had not sent an unlikely friend in the form of Nabal's wife, Abigail. So let's turn our attention now to the friend that God sends, starting in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we didn't miss anything when they were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And he said, she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. Just looking around this room, I can say that every man in this room married up. Nabal is the patron saint of men who have married up. Gordon Ketty, a commentator, says, Abigail looks here like the competent wife who had been called upon before to rectify some of her husband's pig-headedness. Men like that rarely know how much they owe to the faithfulness of their wives. And, and, and I'll, I'll second that. Men who have good wives do not realize how much we owe to our wives. And so I'll say it to all the wives here on behalf of all oafs and fools and boneheads, please continue to be faithful. We desperately need you to be far better than we deserve. But consider how she helped to diffuse the situation as she came to seek peace with David and apologize 
on her husband's behalf. And this is no half-hearted apology. She's grieved at what her husband has done, and she understands they're one flesh. She doesn't just say, hey, ignore my dumb oaf of a husband. She pleads forgiveness on his behalf. Look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell on his, at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and the, hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young, man who follow, the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Now, some have criticized Abigail here for failing to submit to her husband. Wifely submissiveness does not entail following her husband when his pig-headedness is about to destroy the family. Abigail knows David's military reputation and that her family had no chance of standing up against David. She circumvents Nabal here, seeking to be a peacemaker, making amends with David before David makes mincemeat of the family. I think she teaches us a good lesson. Actually, there's several lessons we'll learn, but one of them is just what a biblical apology looks like. Look what she does. First, she humbles herself in David's presence. Verse 23, she, she bows down before David. A.W. Pink says of Abigail's humility, Nabal had insulted David as a runaway slave, but his, his wife owns him as a superior, as her king in the purpose of God. She teaches us here that a true apology starts with a posture of humility. And what Abigail is doing here is effectively throwing herself before David, saying, I am here at your mercy. And then in, in verse 24, she confesses the guilt that she and her family bear because of her husband. Verse 24, she fell at her feet on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. This is an integral part of the peacemaking process, that if we're seeking to be reconciled to someone, the priority ordinarily should not be to present our rationale for why we did what we did. That's not an apology. That's a defense. An apology confesses guilt. And then third, in verse 27, she sought to make things right. 
She says, now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Nabal refused to give food, so she brought an abundance of food to David and his men. A true apology involves restitution towards those whom you've wronged. Remember, when Zacchaeus was converted, nobody had to coerce him to pay back the taxes that he extorted from his fellow Jews. He he did it willingly. And then finally, Abigail said one of the hardest things in any language, please forgive. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant. Now, among other things that Abigail teaches us here, she's a wonderful picture of what it looks like to maintain the peace and purity of the church. Now, we could say, well, Abigail was just seeking to save her life and the life of her family. But we, as the church of Christ, ought to be just as zealous to pursue peace and purity. And if we have wronged somebody, to go to them and follow Abigail's model of what an apology looks like. Not a self-justification, not an excuse, but to fall on our faces spiritually speaking, and asking forgiveness. What's interesting is, is Abigail actually saved David. He, she saved David from working salvation with his own hand and bringing blood guilt upon himself. And David look, recognizes that. Look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come and meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Let's begin to wrap it up with a couple closing notes here. First, I told you the question on everyone's mind when Samuel died is who's going to build the kingdom? And at times, David here thought it was going to be him because he wanted to protect his reputation and he wanted to save himself. He wanted to work salvation with his hand. That phrase that that Abigail repeated and then David repeated back to her, you're right, I was taking matters into my own hands. What we're supposed to walk away from this text remembering is that no matter what is going on in the world around us, God is going to build his kingdom. In their context, it was the kingdom of Israel. Or as the confession calls it, the church under age. In our context, it is the church. Jesus is going to build his church, and he certainly doesn't need our schemes. He doesn't need us to take matters into our own hands. God's work must be done God's way. And so as we see David here, we're reminded that it would not be him that built the kingdom, but it would be Yahweh. We're reminded here that the best of men are men at best. We're all boneheads, we're all oafs, and we desperately need Yahweh's intervention to keep us from self-destructing. That's the first thing. Second thing, we ought to be grateful to God for restraining grace. God sent Abigail to keep David from himself. How often have your plans and my plans been hindered, providentially hindered, 
And they ended up being the most gracious thing that God could have done. It may have been immensely frustrating at the time. David had blood thirst. And Abigail's getting in the way. And yet, it was through Abigail that God spared David great guilt. When we see that in our lives, that the kindest thing God at times can do is to ruin our plans, then we ought to praise him for it. That's what David does here. Third, this text reminds us how much easier it is to just let the Lord fight our battles. There would have been major implications for David killing the, king, uh, the men of Nabal's house. Look at verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone, and about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. This text starts with an understatement. Samuel died. It ends here with understatement. God has fought David's battle for him. He did not need to unsheath his sword. God fought the battle. It's a lesson for David and you and me that we can often get so worked up over things and feel like we need to take matters into our own hands when all the while God had them under control. It was no stress at all upon God to defend David here and to take care of Nabal. Last thing. We need to see Jesus in this text. Now, we're in the custom of of seeing Jesus as the greater David, but this is actually a very different experience. Jesus in this text is the greater Abigail. Abigail is the one who is a picture of Christ in so many ways. Uh, Like Abigail, Christ humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, taking on human flesh. Like Abigail took Nabal's sin onto herself, so too has Jesus taken our sins onto himself before God. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like Abigail did for David all that Nabal failed to do, so too has Christ kept the law perfectly and done what we have failed to do. And he did it all on our behalf. That's why Paul could say, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And as Abigail appealed to David for forgiveness for Nabal, so too Christ ever lives to intercede for us. In Abigail, we certainly see the fruit of this uniquely godly woman, but more importantly, we see in her an example of the picture of salvation that Christ alone can offer. He alone can forgive our sin when we're fools, and he alone can build his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord God, we see the uncertainty in the beginning of this text of who will build the kingdom and and fear about what's going to happen. We see the clay feet of David, but we see the steady hand of God. That you are the one who's going to build the kingdom. You are the one who is going to work salvation with your own hand. God, you do it in the most unexpected of ways in this passage, and you do it in the most unexpected of ways in our lives. Through an incarnated Savior. 
through the Son of God who took on flesh. Lord, he is our hope. We know that there's no sense in trusting in princes or chariots. We must trust in the name of the Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.